Becky, welcome aboard uh, to the Big Time Adulting Podcast. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm so excited to be talking to you. So thank you for having me. It's so great to have you. I just have to start off by saying that like on social media, I have sometimes been like, I don't know, there's just so much parenting advice out there these days. I find this to be overwhelming to me. It makes me sometimes feel worse as a mom. You are this internet sensation revered by celebrities, parents, experts everywhere, giving advice left and right of ways that are changing lots of people's lives in terms of parenting. I've gotten that feedback before on my messages. She changed our life. What do you want people to know about you that they might not know about you or get about you from the way that you are presented on your social media, in your podcast, etc.? I've never been asked that question before. Um, I always have a hard time giving a single answer to great nuanced questions. So I'll, I'll say a couple things. So number one, I really, really mean that my kids do not have Dr. Becky as their mom. And all the time, my husband will be like, did you see Dr. Becky's posts? Like, that could really help you with all the things you've been doing with our children. You know, like, it really is this part of me. And yet with our own kids, we all know this. There's a big difference between knowledge and action. And I have my own triggers. I have my own moments. I have my own weeks in a row where I'm like, wow, I just haven't been showing up the way I want. I really have watched some of my workshops with my husband. I actually have because it feels like it's two different kind of parts of me. And so I really, really mean that. And Caitlin, what you said, learning anything new, I find it's, it's a very, very brave endeavor because whenever you're confronted with something you might not have known or considered you can so easily go into the mode of, oh my goodness, like what's wrong with me? Someone else knew this and I didn't, or oh, I've been quote doing it wrong. And so learning something new can sit right next to shame, which shuts us down and actually gets in our way of maybe using the thing we learned to actually change. And so to me, the whole point of what I share and why I love doing this is because I hope that I help parents just actually tap into something that actually is inside them. I don't think I'm like giving them something. I think I'm like a pilot in their journey and we all need that co-pilot. And in order to do that, we just have to avoid the shame of, oh, someone's perfect or someone knows it all, which I definitely don't. But I am, I do try to be really mindful and like sharing that with people. And I want everyone listening to know that here. The other thing, and I was just saying this to my producer, I see the title of our recording is big time and Dr. B, which I'm like, I just feel like that's like a music group or something, Caitlin. Like, we can talk later. There's a lot of extensions. The thing I love about it is, like, I really do have a part of me, and I've said this to you, where, like, I I guess people don't see it as much. Like, I love to dance. I love to have fun. I, you know, am pretty, I don't know, light and, you know, about a lot of things. And that probably doesn't come through as much. Do you like to have cocktails while you're dancing ever? You know, I I sometimes do. And I am actually known in my group of friends as like when I'm out and I'm dancing somewhere, like I enjoy dancing way too much to (laughs) like spend any time at the bar. So everyone's like, Becky is completely sober and she's up on stage like doing, you know, some dance move that not particularly talented, but I definitely am enjoying myself. Yeah, I actually, when there is good music, I run into that same problem. I just can't, I can't 
I can't it's a really get my... hard choice we face. Like, do I dance? Do I go to the bar? It's it's tough. <laughs> I know decisions, decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so get it, getting um into the meat of this combo, which is your advice, because I asked my audience what questions they had for you. So I saw a bunch of repeating themes, and mm. number one right now is back to school shit because we're all in the thick of it. And I think everyone feels like they're going a little crazy right now. I definitely do. But there are some pretty like bigger issues that people are running into with back to school stuff, particularly surrounding anxiety about going to school and social issues. So we'll break it down one at a time, starting with kind of like the massive anxiety that some kids have going into school at all and the separation anxiety there. What is typically like the reason behind that that you see? And what are some tips for parents going through that on a daily basis right now? So yes, I always say, and I think this is important, we have to understand before we intervene. And actually, parents, I think if you take one thing from this, like I hope you take that because often we want to intervene right away. But it would be like trying to fix someone's, I don't know, I don't even play tennis, but it's like trying to fix someone's tennis stroke without understanding, like, is it a grip issue? Are they in the wrong position? And then you do a ton of stuff and you just get frustrated because you actually aren't doing something that speaks to the understanding of the problem. So there's a bunch of reasons why kids might feel anxious about going to school. So number one, it's just a big transition. In the summer, a lot of people, they have a slower schedule. Kids are in their pajamas for a while. They usually spend, especially in the end of summer, like more time with their parents because they're not away all the time, right? And then as you move into the school year, they're spending less time with their parents. They're going into some situation that's unfamiliar. You're basically going from spending your time in your home in your neighborhood to spending time either in a new building or at least in a new classroom with new adults and a new set of kids. That's a lot of transition from known and comfortable to unknown and uncomfortable. So the other thing I would say that adds to the anxiety of that transition is actually the way we think as parents we should intervene about our kids' anxiety. Our job is not to take away our kids' anxiety or convince them that they shouldn't be anxious. And not only isn't that our job, the more you try to tell an anxious kid that everything will be okay, the more anxiety they will have. The more you tell an anxious kid that it actually is okay for them to be anxious, the more they will believe that everything will be okay. And there's a reason for this. When our kids are feeling anxious, what they're also assessing is, is my parent as anxious about my anxiety as I am? So if I'm feeling scared or worried, and then I see that my parent is also scared and worried for me, which they show by basically trying to take the feeling away because they're like, yeah, I don't want you to feel this way either. What a kid learns is, I guess my anxiety actually is as like big and bad and powerful as I worried it was. And so all the things we do that in some ways come naturally and come from the best place. Wait, but you are with this friend in class. Wait, but you're going to have so much fun. But you love school last year. What a kid really feels is, okay, this feeling is uncomfortable. And every time my parent tries to convince me why I shouldn't feel this way, it actually gets bigger. And so you can see how you could get into a really, really vicious cycle around that. So let's do the opposite. And this can be applied to a million things. I call it one foot in validation, one foot in hope. Two things at once. What do I mean by that? Validate that your kid is anxious and, and this is really important, and hold the other side. 
Not that they shouldn't be anxious, but that you just have hope for them or you see their capability. So I'll give you some examples. Oh, you're going back to school. Yeah, it makes sense to be nervous. That's a big change. And you know what? I just know it's not going to feel as tough in a few days. Or maybe they're two weeks into school, right? And they're still really anxious about going. Oh, saying goodbye to me outside of school is really hard. And I believe you. And I just know that even kids who have trouble saying goodbye end up having a really good day at school. Both of those things are true, sweetie. Yeah, that's great. I try to do this with my kids. Like, I understand you're feeling like this, but I also know you can do it. Like, you can do this and um, keep going, you know. But I, there's just quickly before we move on from this little part of it is that like there are kids who are, you know, like physically kicking and screaming, grabbing onto their parents. It's like a very traumatic, you know, event for them going into school, traumatic for the parents. Is that a point at which you would suggest those parents like talk to somebody professional and get more intervention with it? Or is that like something that they should continue to handle? So we just don't need to feel helpless and overwhelmed as parents anymore. Like, that's basically what parenting has been for us for decades. It's like, at best, you can get some, like, SEO-optimized article that, like, probably isn't really helpful to you, or you feel alone. And what I'd say, whether, for example, in this situation, to be totally honest, I would really want to say to this parent, oh, my goodness, like, go take my back-to-school bundle. It's, like, so many short things. Literally, All the parents I know who took it were like, that was the first year of my kid's life where actually everything went smoothly because it gives you the whole arc from what you need as a parent to what your kid needs. We need a lot. When your kid is really, really kind of like feral, if you aren't managing your own anxiety, your kid feeds off that, right? So what I would just say to parents across the board is I would stop asking ourselves, like kind of, do I need to get professional help now? It's so negative. It's more like, do I feel like I deserve another team member? a kind of more comprehensive um, approach than like maybe a tip here and there. It would be like a surgeon saying like, I don't know, like, do I need to go get, you know, more training or like, is it okay just to get tips on Instagram? I'm pretty sure we'd be like, yeah, it's not like you need more training, but like you you are doing surgery. So like, I feel like it's an important job. Like you might just want to like give yourself that if this is something you want to keep doing. Yeah. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm actually a doctor, um, a Google, an internet doctor. Oh, I did doctor. not know that. Yeah, Where'd so you get your degree? Google, yeah. Oh, oh, <laughs> yeah. makes sense. Google yeah. gives them out to everybody, WebMD. I've heard uh, the advice there is like very, very holding and specific mm, and anxiety-reducing. Everyone's dying, everyone's yeah. dying um, oh. when you're an internet doctor. I don't even know why we're talking then, Caitlin. We should like go live our last thing in our life. You know, exactly. go do that. Keeping on the theme of back Mm -hmm. to school with middle schoolers, high schoolers and the social Mm -hmm. issues that cause them a lot of anxiety around going back to school. Like, what are the ways that we can help them? Because there's not a lot that parents can do about what's being said at school, unless it's like a real bullying situation and you really need to step in. But like, how do I how do we keep ourselves from not getting into a fist fight with the little asshole that's being mean to our kid? How do we handle that? What tools do we give? our older kids to deal with these social issues. So like like the, an example, like I'm just like my kid comes home and they're like, this kid said something to me at the playground or this kid won't let me play basketball and said I'm the worst basketball player in the whole grade. Like that kind of situation yes. or like girls maybe being left out of a group, stuff yeah. like that. Or people saying, you know, yeah, you suck at basketball. Yeah. What do you say back? Like, 
So this is, uh, like, again, I love this topic. Okay, because I think there's a reframe here that's really powerful, right? In general, as parents, when we ask ourselves questions that feel confusing to answer, when we're like, I don't know, my guidance to parents is it not that you're not capable of answering the question, you're asking yourself the wrong question. And so to me, the much more upgraded question here is, am I thinking about protecting my kid in life or am I thinking more about preparing my kid in life? I think about those two words a lot, protection versus preparation. This is not to say I don't take my kid and I'm like, hey, I'm going to send you to a play date with four of the meanest kids in your grade because I just want to prepare you for like all the hard things that are coming in your life. Of course. And there's a time to step in. But here's something I know. When my kid is 20, he is going to be left out of things. When my daughter is 30, she's going to notice people that she likes having lunch without her, right? Like that stuff always happens. And I think as parents, when we see our kid upset, we do from the best place. We have this reaction of like, who did this to you? So first of all, what I would say to my kid when they come home saying anything to me, right? And my kids are six, almost nine and almost 12, right? So I have a range. Whenever my kid reports anything from school that like wasn't great, I really try more than anything else to say this first. I'm so glad you're sharing this with me. Again, like I'm long-term greedy with my kids. And like maybe my son's telling me now about like a basketball situation. Like I know in 10 years the stakes are going to be higher. And I want him in his body to have encoded his uncomfortable moment with like a safe moment with me where I'm not judgmental, where we're really connected. And just saying to your kid again, imagine going to your boss and being like, this is really bad. And I, I kind of don't think I got the raise I deserve. If your boss just started by saying, I'm so glad you came to me with this, he'd be like, oh my God, the <laughs> best boss ever. But it really is saying, I am a safe person to talk to when you're upset, which is the foundation for everything. So I'd say that first. The second thing I'd say is just some version of like, I believe you. I think those three words are kid, like words kids need to hear in a million different ways. And if you want words that build kids' confidence, it's not having a zinger back to a bully. It's believing their own experience so they don't spiral or think they're making a big deal out of something or think they have something to prove. Just, I believe you. And then I'd probably say something like, that stinks. That sounds like a really hard moment. And in some ways, Caitlin, what I'm doing in that moment when my kid's upset about a social situation is I'm just like sitting in it with them. When you sit in a moment with your kid, they begin to trust you. They feel less alone. It's feeling alone in distress, not distress itself, that makes us spiral and feel anxious and awful. And actually, the sooner you say to a kid, well, we're not going to invite that kid to your birthday party. Nobody liked him anyway. You know, um, what you're actually doing is you're actually leaving your kid alone with the feeling they were having in the first place. And when instead you take the opposite approach of like, hey, I'm so glad you shared this with me. I believe you. That sounds like it really stinks. You actually give your kid a little space. They might just say back to you, I know it was hard. Okay, I think I'm going to start my homework. Like you might be like, wow, that actually wasn't the big thing that I had to solve. Or they might share something else. Or maybe then you brainstorm with them what they could do if that happened the next time. But that first part is what kids really need more than anything else. Yeah, I find when my kids talk to me about stuff like that, I reel with anxiety and like pain for them and it keeps me up at night. But then they're 
kind of sometimes just okay and they're just keeping on going. I mean, my kids are still younger, so I'm not talking about, you know, like a, a 12, a 13, 14, 15-year-olds. I think that that sits in them longer. Um, and I feel like, you know, you're right. You, you Just to know that you're there, you can't fix everything for your kids. Like you just, you just can't as much as you want to. But listen, a good zinger here and there, if you can... <laughs> a good singer is so good. So good. Your kid's got to be equipped with those. But uh, what I'm saying is I want my kid to be successful in delivering it. So yeah. the order of operations matters. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Absolutely. I, yeah. <laughs> and I, I've always like, we we have ha- had a couple of situations like that throughout the years. And one of the things that I say to my kids, if they don't know what to do or how to respond, I, I always say, try to keep a sense of humor, you know, try to find like maybe what's funny in this situation for you or that you might be able to make a joke about it. Um, And it's a, you know, it's a defense mechanism, but it's a great source of deflection. So it can sometimes work. Well, look, defense mechanisms get a bad rap. But if you think about their origin, they're trying to defend us, right? They're trying to protect us. They're trying to help us. So defense mechanisms can be really positive. We don't want to utilize one at the expense of the others and some you know, humor works well for you. It might for one of your kids, it might not for another, right? But certainly that's a a tool in our tool belt. Another question that people had a lot to say about were parenting styles, differing parenting styles, where um, some parents are now, what they actually referred to as saying, using parenting the Dr. Becky way Mm. versus like some of the more old school approaches where, you know, it's kind of like, I said what I said, and I don't really give a shit how you feel about it right now because you were acting like a jerk kind of thing. Right. So there's two different maybe mindsets or maybe, maybe that's a misconception and maybe it can all be sort of rolled into one way of parenting now. But I think that there was like a lot of insecurity around like maybe a mom feeling that they're being more sensitive and um, more validating of feelings and giving, you know, being a gentler parent. And then uh, maybe a dad still being that old school, more stern, stubborn way, my way or the highway. And not just within couples, I would say, like uh, the question extended to family members, parents, in-laws, some friends. So um, I guess the question is like, what would you say to people who are trying to find a way to balance two different pa- parenting styles with, you know, maybe acceptance and respect for the other? What do you What do you do? Look, I think quote, not being on the same page as my partner about how we parent, end quote, is like one of the most common things I talk to parents about. As soon as we're in convincing mode with anyone, that other person gets defensive because all of a sudden there's right, wrong, there's good, bad, and nobody wants to be on the, you know, darker side of that binary. No one. Like we all know as humans what it's like when someone's trying to convince us of something and we all harden, right? So that's number one. It's just not effective to even try to reach your end goal by convincing. Number two, I always want parents to know, like, you don't need to have two parents parenting the same way for your kid to have a positive impact about the way you parent them. You really don't. Like, is more better? Sure. Like, it's probably true in life, right? Like, more of that consistency? Sure. And we know from a lot of research that actually kids having one adult in their life that they feel really safe with, they feel really seen by, um, is really, really protective. Number three, I really like to shift parents in this idea of being on the same page to something much more attainable and important 
which is speaking the same language. Being on the same page to me is like we are reading a book and we are literally on the same page of the book. Speaking the same language is like, okay, we both have read parts of that book and we at least have a language with each other where we could talk about it, where maybe for me, my husband actually doesn't like this part of the book and I do. But the problem with most kind of co-parents, it's not that they're not on the same page. It's that they don't even speak the same language. They say, hey, will you watch this video? Can we talk about it? The person won't even watch it. Or like they're not able to respectfully even talk about it. It gets very, very antagonistic. And so what I recommend saying to a partner who you find is very resistant is just something like, hey, you know, I think we forget to tell each other we're on the same team. And and I actually think we want the same things. Like we want our kids to feel confident. We want them to deal with the hard things that come their way in life. We want them to find a sense of purpose. Like we actually do want the same outcome. We just kind of have different senses of like the road to get there. And, you know, I think we focus so much on whose road is right as opposed to remembering like we actually are on the same team trying to get the same place. And and I'll say this to you, Caitlin, and for everyone, we know that there is no problem solving that can happen without being connected and both people feeling understood. So if people hear that, they're like, fine, I'll say that to my partner, but what is that going to accomplish? It is the foundation for figuring it out. And we always have to start with the foundation. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I feel like just from a like a human perspective of just dealing with people in general, like nobody wants to feel blamed or attacked and that kind of thing. So if you can kind of start those conversations with like a, hey, like, you know, I respect you so much. And yeah. like, I, I love who you are and what you're about. Obviously, I chose to marry you or whatever. But I've just, you know, I'm dealing with this in this way. And I hope you can understand that I, I want to kind of take this approach towards things when I'm doing the parenting. And I feel like that sort of opening it up to I respect you and and accept you. Yeah will invite that person to bend a little bit more or consider your perspective so much more, you know? Yes, this is actually the core idea that drives good inside. It's literally the idea of being good inside, that when we're in conflict with someone and we're arguing and we all know those conversations, they start and they just explode right away, you think you're talking to someone, but the only thing the two of you are actually saying back to each other is, I'm a good person. No, I'm a good person. No, I need you to see that I'm a good person. You're actually arguing with each other trying to kind of reaccess your goodness. And so when a partner gets very defensive about their parenting style, you might not be saying it, but to be effective, you have to focus on what someone's hearing, not just what you're saying, right? And what they're hearing is, I think I'm better than you, and I think you don't know what you're doing, or I think you're messing up your kid, or I think you're not a good parent. And so to me, the whole idea of good inside is separating your good identity from any individual behavior, Hmm. which ironically is the thing that helps us change our behavior because we don't conflate the two. And so even to say that, hey, like, I know you mean well. Again, I married you. Like, I know we both want the same things for our kids. Even saying that, like, I know we are both parents who are good inside doing the best we can. And that's over here on one side. And over here are the various ways we interact with our kids when they're being difficult. Right. (laughs) And like, I would love to try to talk about that difference in approach while still remembering over here (laughs) in a core way, that like we're both good people doing the best we can. And I'm going to plug something for a second. To me, someone actually just DM'd this this morning. They actually said, it was a woman. She's like, my husband has refused to engage in any of the good inside kind of like stuff I've sent their way. But she said, she's like, your TED Talk came out yesterday. And he like respects the authority of TED. (laughs) And, And he responded. He was like, I'll watch that together. And it just for the first time 
created a conversation. Because if you think about watching something together, instead of me being across from you, which is actually like, and I'm telling you something, which is in some ways like an adversarial position, I'm actually next to you. And we're like watching the same thing, which feels like you're on the same team. Speaking of having like a little bit of a difference of opinion and feelings with people, you talk a lot about the DFK, the deeply feeling kid, the triggers that we feel as parents when our kids are having like explosive moments, um, when they bring in their siblings to those moments who kind of, you know, they start screaming at them because they're upset and want to scream at somebody, you know, fake crying, things like that. How do, what are our best mindsets in those situations? Yeah. You know, I think of all the things I've put out in the world, I I really do mean this. Like, I really think the DFK program is the thing I'm, like, I am proudest of. And the way it came about, just, again, I want to make sure everyone has context, is I had my first kid. And in the time I was in my private practice, I was giving people lots of, like, thoughts and guidance. They'd come to me. But there would be these parents who were like, okay, I'm doing what you're saying. Like, I am. I'm showing up. I'm validating. I'm holding a boundary. I'm doing this thing. And it is making my kid worse. It is making them worse. And I had one kid. I was doing it with my kid, too. And in the back of my head, I'd be totally transparent. I was like, I don't think you're doing it right. Like, I didn't say that. I was like, no problem. We'll try something else. But in the back of my head, I was like, if only they could do this like I did this, their kid, you know, would respond. And then I had my second child, okay? Then I had my second child. And I was like, holy fuck, okay? Like, like what the fuck? Like, and I was like, but then it all connected. I was like, the, the, this is this is what 20, 40 Parents have been telling me, my kid is doing what they said their kid did. And I know I'm doing it the same way because it's like in my house. And then I had a more massive connection because at that time I was seeing so many adults in really intensive psychotherapy and going, you know, like doing the work in the present to understand like what they never got but always needed. And, you know, and I was like, oh, my goodness, this subset of adults were these kids. These kids really do have bigger tantrums. They really do have bigger feelings. They really do have bigger reactions. They really are more sensitive in a way. And I'm not using that in a negative way. And so they really do explode. And my vision of this, I was like, there are kids who are more porous to the world. Their pores are bigger. So if you imagine that, more comes in and more (laughs) flows out. And for those kids, and this is a key understanding I want everyone to know, their vulnerability sits right next to their shame. It's almost impossible for DFKs to feel vulnerable without having shame layered on, which is why the vulnerability turns into an explosion of rage. It feels for these kids like their feelings are attacking them, which if you have one of these, it's like that actually finally makes sense. That's why my child behaves like a caged animal if they trip or like I say no to screen time, right? Because they actually feel attacked by their feelings. And so I... Literally had these like two weeks where I was like, it was like a billion things in my brain were connecting. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, they need this, they need this. Because what happens with these kids, they're like, get out of my room. And you're like, fine, I'll leave your room. And you know, but then all that happens, they're like, see, these kids are like, see, I really am as bad and toxic as I worried I am. And so then it confirms their deepest fears, which guess what? Only makes things worse. And so these kids, I always say, they can't take front door strategies. Front door strategies are like, I'm here. Tell me about your feelings. You're a good kid. No. They need side door strategies. They need us to help them learn to regulate. So they need us. But we have to be a lot sneakier because they are so shame prone. And so when I tell you, Caitlin, that like in our membership, 
I, I'll just say it, it's true. Like, I think it's like 40 to 50% of our members have these kids. And every single one of them says the same thing when they connect with each other and take the program. I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one who had a kid who literally looked animalistic. I thought I was the only one whose kid yelled, I hate you. And then between the not feeling alone and actually finally having those side door approaches, I think for the first time, they actually see that their kid is a good kid and that actually their kid starts to really, really shift and make the same type of developmental progress as other kids do. Yeah, so different approaches. And I know you do have a um, class on that. That was actually specifically the one that one of my followers mentioned was like life changing for her. So um, there were a lot of questions about teenagers, mean teenagers, nagging teenagers. Um, How similar or different is the mindset of dealing with those guys versus I feel like that's Teen, teens, a lot of teens are these just DFKs by default with their hormones raging and everything, right? So they can present like that. They push you away when you need them the most. And so you've got to really regulate the distance. So a couple things I'll say about teens. I, I used to work with teens a lot in my private practice. I love teens. And at some point, I'm going to do a lot more for parents of teens. I think my kids are getting there. So I'll be like, oh my goodness, I got to do this. You know, I'll share a story. So I remember this like 16-year-old who saw me, who came to my private practice and she came and I remember she was wearing this t-shirt and she, and this is not all teens. Okay. Like this was her. She, she had been cutting herself. Like she was in a ton of distress. Right. And I remember just saying in like the intake, like, how long have you been doing this? And she was like a year and a half, two years. I was like, okay, have you seen a therapist? She's like, no, it's my first session or something. And I was like, I was, I really just asked her and she was like, so like prickly. I was like, why, like, why did it take you so long to come to my office or someone's office? And this is literally, I'm going to cry. She was, oh, well, my parents, when they found out, told me, you know, this is a problem and you need to see someone and we're going to get you help. And I told them, oh, you're going to get me help. Well, you're just going to drive me to a therapist's office and I'm never going to go in and I'm going to waste all your money and there's nothing you can do. And you're telling me that you think I'm a problem. And if that's the case, then just say it to my face. And, you know, she's like telling this whole thing. And then she got silent. And I just like, I don't know why in the moment I just knew not to say anything. And she kind of looked to the ground and her entire body shifted. And she looked at me, my heart is racing, and she just goes, can you believe that they believe me? And I have never seen a teen in so much distress of like, can you believe that they let me like over, I'm going to cry, like overpower what they should have known like was really good for me. Can you believe they took the bait? Mm. And... You know, and when I think about teens, a lot of whom do not cut, I'm not trying to say that, but I think about that a lot, that get out of my room, you're the worst. And then they, you know, we leave, they slam the door and we're like all annoyed. And I'm not trying to say, teens also need, I'm not trying to say every parent, so go and knock down your kid's door and, you know, sleep in bed with them. And they, uh, no, but I do think about returning to that door and like slipping a note under that just says, like, hey, that was tough, and, like, I love you, and we're going to get through this. Or sending them a text, something that, like, similar to DFK, kind of regulates closeness with distance, because teens, just like DFKs, need enough distance to take in your closeness, if that makes sense, Mm. right? Um, But they're very, very um, vigilant for signs, like all kids are, that we really do think they're bad and unlovable. And so just I would say to anyone with teens, like, they do need some distance. It's a time that they figure themselves out. But they also, really, like, they need us to show that we want to be with them. Sometimes they're going to reject us 
with that effort. They need to do it developmentally to figure out who they are. But don't stop trying. Like, they they really need that. Don't stop trying. Keep being a punching bag. I mean, here and there. You, as a parent, you just do have to continue to show up. Like, that's yeah. the only thing you can do, right? Like That's what it is. I think like this is something that I really feel like good inside parenting. I always say it's sturdy, not gentle, because like being a punching bag, like we can resent our kid like that doesn't feel good. But like to me, there's a lot between being a punching bag and just saying like, fine, forget it. And to me, the middle is like you're in that moment. You can say to your kid, hey, listen, I love you and I know you're a good kid and I care about this and I want to talk about it and I need you to say it in a different way so we can stay in this conversation together. Like that is sturdy. And it also, though, comes from the perspective of seeing your kid as a good kid. And to me, that's that middle that, like, parents have not been given enough. Like, oh, right. Okay. Like, I'm pretty badass leader in that moment. And I'm staying connected with my kid. And that's, to me, what I, like, love, like, sharing with parents, ways to do that. On your TED Talk, because I watched that yesterday um, on repair and what uh, there I love the message so much because it speaks to every parent who always, like, we all lose our shit. We all yell. We all have bad, bad moments, you know, um, that we would probably be, like, embarrassed of ourselves if someone saw us in those moments. But what you said at the end that I loved the most of that was that it's never too late to repair. So, like, even if you're just learning stuff now or learning about repair now for the first time and you're like, shit, I already fucked up so many times. This is going to cause long-term damage to my kid. And you gave this example of a parent going to their adult child to, you know, admit that they fucked up sometimes. And that was just super helpful. I think it was, I actually went into my daughter's room and I was like, um, you know, I just want you to know, like, there have been times as a mom that, like, I've exploded and stuff, and I haven't shown, like, maybe the adult behavior that I should, but those were usually because I was really stressed out. And that is such a gift. And she was like, why are you saying this to me, mom? And I was like, well, because I just watched Dr. Becky's TED Talk. (laughs) TED Talk. I thought I was supposed to do this. You're (laughs) supposed to say thank you. No, and kids in general, I think we're really thrown off when we have something we think is profound and kids are like, can I have my snack now? But it's just like we do that. When something actually feels very meaningful to a lot of us, we also have to put a little distance there to take it in. Yeah. And yes, just for everyone here, please go watch the TED Talk. I promise you, like, I know this sounds weird, I promise you it'll be life-changing. It will. It'll actually change something for you. It'll be zero guilt. You'll actually feel relieved. Promise that. And it's not a major time commitment. It's like, no, 12, 10 minutes. Four, yeah. yeah. Something like that. 10 minutes. And I think, you know, to give you a little preview, I'm not like a withholding person, is yes, it literally is never too late. And when I talk to my friends, when I talk to parents in my community, Nobody says, like, I wish my parents were perfect. Like, it's absurd. First of all, it wouldn't even help your kids if you were perfect. That would be the model that they would expect from every other relationship. Like, that's a disaster. What we need from parents isn't perfection. It's connection after imperfection. Because in general, being yelled at, having your parents yell at you as a kid is not traumatic. It's not even damaging. What is awful for kids is when they're scared and alone after being yelled at. And even if you're thinking, okay, but that did happen weeks ago or years ago, the memory in their body is what impacts them. And that memory lives in their body in that alone, scared, I guess there's something wrong with me because this happened to me way. 
And we can always, in the best way, we can always go back to that moment. I always say you're kind of like reopening the file and you're adding another element. Like you're adding in what you just did. Hey, there have been moments and that wasn't your fault. And to me, the idea of like snatching out self-blame from my kid's body, what I know long-term is when they struggle, which they will, the thing that is awful when we have a hard time as an adult isn't that we're struggling. It's that we tell ourselves, I'm the worst. I always do. I always mess things up. I'm no good. I'm too much. Well, guess what? That's the legacy of self-blame from our childhood. And repair is actually the answer for how we take that away from our kids, which is like the biggest gift. So yes, please watch the TED Talk. I loved the dress. I loved the dress. Thank you. Thank and you. the heels. Thank you. Thank you. True story. A week before, my co-founder and like best friend was like, what are you wearing? And I was like, I don't know, something from my closet. And she's like, what is wrong with you? You're not just like, no, like we are getting you a dress. So Erica is responsible for my appearance, but I'm responsible for the ideas. Both matter. Um, so yes, go watch it. And I just like, I can't wait to hear what everyone thinks. Before you go, last question. What is your favorite snack? Oh, my favorite snack. Okay. Can I give two? Sure. Can I give three? Sure. Okay. Why not? The truth is one of these might be the most life-changing advice I have about anything. And so get ready. Okay. My favorite like quick grab snack is something new. I found like those Utz pretzel shells. Like you bite into them and they're air, but like they're really like delicious forms of pretzels. Very into Utz pretzel. They're like shells. Okay. Then when I want something and I'm like, I need a snack, but I know I need something substantial. Okay. I have 5% Fudge yogurt, like a little scoop, and I put a ton of cinnamon on it and I dip apples in it. So it's Mm. like a little apple pie-esque, perfect for the fall. And then my go-to life-changing snack, okay, is you take a date that's hopefully pitted already, but if not, and you cut it in half lengthwise and you take a bunch of them. Okay. So they're boats. You fill it with peanut butter and then like three mini chocolate chips and you put the whole tray of them in the freezer. And I swear to you, Caitlin, these taste like Reese's peanut butter cups, even though they're like totally healthy. My kids love them. And you just like pop them from the freezer. And you're like, I will like pop so many of them. So a little bit of time, then lifelong impact. Okay. So those are my favorite snacks. Oh my God. I better get my ass to the store to buy some dates now. And I want everybody to know that Dr. Becky did not know that question was coming. And it was almost like you've been waiting for it your whole life. That was amazing. I mean, I'm Snacks are my, you know, I know snacks are your jam, so I won't say they're mine, but like if there was someone else's like They're everybody's jam, jam, right? Snacks are everybody's jam. It's not, I don't own that. Um, Well, thank you honestly so much. That was really fun. I loved having you. Tons of great advice. I will post in show notes about your um, awesome TED Talk, et cetera, where people can find you, but most people already know where you are. So I will see you back on the gram, Dr. Becky. See you on the gram, Caitlin. Bye. Thanks so much for being here. For more information on today's episode, visit my show notes. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a review. Now get yourself a snack.